The scripture this morning is from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, an important realization came over me uh, as I was uh, thinking about being here, uh, and that is this. Uh, I am not a good preacher. Uh, that's your cue to say, oh, no, Jeff, you're doing a great job, and I get to act all modest that, you know, while holding my hand out for more accolades. No, I, I am a bad preacher, but I don't mean that in the context of what we're doing here on Sunday morning. Uh, we go up to Chicago every so often to visit my dad, and uh, how many of you, uh, like me, love driving in Chicago traffic? Yeah, no. Uh, so we decide often not to take the uh, busy, stressful, congested interstate and instead take the expensive, anxiety-producing tollway. Uh, the reason that the tollway is anxiety-producing, at least for me, in small measure, is that bridge that you go up, uh, going up into Chicago. Anyone know the bridge that I'm talking about? Yes, there's, uh, going up uh, across the Calumet River, there's this uh, big bridge, and it has a, a long lead-up to it, and um, the part that I don't like is you can't see the other side of the bridge as you're driving up. So you get up to the top of it, and you this great view of the city of Chicago and the Calumet River that you're going to plunge into when the bridge collapses. Which, of course, I know intellectually is not going to happen because thousands of people drive it every day and it's inspected and it's built by engineers and all of that, but there's still this part of me that isn't totally comfortable with it because I can't see where it's going. And, and what if it does collapse? Can, can you hear the bad message I'm preaching to myself? Like, what if, what if I get up there and, you know, I just sort of ramp off the end of it like the Dukes of Hazard, but... 
but there's nothing on the other side, and I go 200 feet down. What if God lets that happen? What, what if the bridge collapses? What if, what if I collapse? What if I make a mess of everything? I preach bad messages to myself. I'm a bad preacher. And so is Pastor Joey and Pastor Tom and Pastor Nathan, and so are all of us. Because we preach bad messages to ourselves. Now, maybe your messages aren't like mine about, you know, some of the fears and anxieties and worries. Maybe sometimes it's uh, just about uh, disappointments or regrets or failures. Does anyone else clearly think back to that dumb thing that you did last year and just keep replaying it in your head or that awful, embarrassing, cringy thing you said 10 years ago? Or kick yourself because you didn't buy Google when it was 150 and now it's 1500 It's not always about those kinds of things either. I mean, sometimes it's not even about negative things at all. Sometimes we preach bad messages to ourselves about goals and hopes and dreams and identity. Like, man, life will really be good when I get out of school or when I get that job or when I live there or when I get away from here. Or, oh, man, I could be so happy if, if I had that person in my life or if I didn't have that person, other person in my life. Or, man, things will really finally get fixed when we get those people out of power or these people in power or I'm in power or, you know, if everyone would just shut up and listen to me. We preach bad messages to ourselves. Sometimes it's about the comparisons to others. You know, I mean, everyone is, I get it, basically jealous of me. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? It's not my fault, but it is kind of sad. Like, if only everyone were as smart as I am and loved God as much as I did, then obviously they'd agree with me and do things my way. And, oh, what's the matter? You know, you guys take things too seriously. I was just joking around. Why do you have to get your nose bent out of shape? And we are bad preachers, all of us, because we believe and preach bad gospels to ourselves. Now, gospel is a word that we don't use a lot out in culture. It's sort of a Christian shorthand that means, essentially, in the ancient world, it, it was a news of great importance that had impact in people's lives. It, it was something significant that happened that demanded a response. So there could be a gospel, an evangel of a new king being born. And the messenger would go around preaching that evangel, that gospel, and people were supposed to respond. So broadly speaking, a, a gospel is really just kind of a deeply held belief that guides our lives. It's something that says, this is what matters, this is what I believe, and this is how I'm going to live as a result of that belief. And here's the thing, if you've noticed it. The gospel that we actually live by may be different from the one that we say we believe intellectually. Does that make sense? And have you ever found, found yourselves in a place where your head and your heart are doing two different things? 
Like I believe this stuff intellectually, but I really feel this. And what I feel is what's driving what I actually do. And there's a disconnect there. And that's why we need to be reminded of the real gospel over and over. Because we all believe some kind of a gospel, and that gospel is shaping our lives. We all believe a gospel, and we are all shaped by whatever that gospel is that we believe. So that's why we need to make sure we understand and remind ourselves what the real good news is. Now, we're going through this series where we're looking at the parts of our worship, why we worship the way we do. And you saw in the intro, we, we form forms, and then those forms form us. What we rehearse, what we do, shapes who we become. So today we're looking at Psalm 103 and the actual good news, the real gospel of God's love to us in Jesus Christ. So if you haven't, go ahead and open your Bibles or you can take one of those black Bibles from the seat underneath in front of you. And if you do that, we're on page 594. And if you don't, I don't know what page you're on. But we're in Psalm 103. And here, David, the, uh, the king, the psalmist, the songwriter, is speaking to himself, telling him to worship, telling himself to orient himself around something that is fundamentally true. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Do you see what David is doing? He is preaching to himself. He's saying to himself, listen, self, this is important. Remind yourself, remind me what is true and what I need to believe. And he's saying specifically, praise the Lord. That, that, you know what that is? That's just to speak highly of, to recognize the excellency of. We praise sports stars. We praise servers for giving us good service in a restaurant. We Praise our children for getting good grades, for trying hard, for doing their chores, for all kinds of things. And David is saying, I need to remind myself of why the Lord is worthy of praise, why he is excellent, and how he has been good to me. David is saying, remind me again, O soul, why I need to praise God and put my hope in him. He is reminding himself not to forget. Does that make sense? We, it's not a contradiction. We have to remind ourselves not to forget. Because, of course, sometimes we forget things that's, you know, just something that was beyond our mental capacity, but most of the time we forget things because we simply remember, we don't remember to remember them. Honey, did you take the garbage out? No. You asked me to do that, didn't you? In one ear, out the other. I knew it. I just chose not to remember it. And how do we remember not to forget? Well, there's all kinds of ways. You could put a sticky note on your mirror. You could put a reminder on the fridge. You can put an alarm in your calendar. You can rehearse things mentally. Do you ever do that? Like 
I'm pretty sure even now that we have cell phones, if you're interested in someone and they give you your, their phone number, you're going to be rehearsing that number in your head. 867-5309. 867-5309. See, we still remember that because you rehearse it. I don't even want that number, but it's in there. Milk, bread, eggs, milk, bread, eggs, milk, bread, eggs. What did I go to the store for? Milk, bread, eggs. David is telling himself to remember something, to not forget it. And that is how the gospel transforms us. Because we remind ourselves of it, and we let it soak into our thinking and into our hearts and into our lives. It's not just by hearing it, it's by reflecting on it and preaching it to ourselves. Meditation in the Bible is not emptying yourself. It's filling yourself with God's truth, reflecting on it, reminding yourself of it, pondering it. That's what David is doing here, and that's what shapes us. You fill your mind with the truth, you, you think on it, and, and it starts to shape us. So what is this gospel that we need to be reminded of? We're going to look at it in just uh, three simple parts here. And the first is this. God really knows you. God really knows you. Now, for some of you, you may be saying, okay, big deal. Some of you may be saying, oh, snap, that's not good. And some of you be saying, really? Look at what David says. Verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man... His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone. When we forget what we are like and who we are, I mean, what do we do? We, you know, we try and make a big deal of ourselves, right? We, we try and puff ourselves up. We become sort of self-concerned with our image, and uh, ironically, even, you know, like, Hating ourselves, in a sense, is another kind of pride because it's just a negative focus that's turned inward on ourselves. We focus on ourselves obsessively, wondering, what am I, am I worth? And is anyone noticing? And does anyone know? And, and then we try to fool people. We try to impress people. We try to get people to pay attention to us, to notice us. David is saying, God knows all of that. And God knows what we are really like. And, and then two images here that are not exactly impressive. We are like dust. That's kind of a humbling picture, right? I mean, what's dust? It's, it's the stuff that collects on the table in the living room and you clean it off every three or four months when company comes over. You, you don't pay attention to it and you, know, you don't bother it, it doesn't bother you. It's something you sweep up and get rid of, like, like the grass of the field that's just here today, gone tomorrow. We are not impressive. We are not permanent. This is not a statement about our worth, our, our value, our inherent significance. It's about our weakness and our frailty. And the reason that's got good news is because God knows that. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are frail. He knows that we are impermanent. And he also knows that we're too easily impressed with ourselves and with one another. 
And when that happens, we lose sight of the really good news. He knows that we are often foolish and confused by our own desires or by the world that we live in. Now, we have, I think by objective standards, pretty smart kids. I mean, they get A's and B's in school, they're on dean's list, and they get, they've gotten scholarship things, and, and, and yet this brilliant son got taken in by an internet scammer. Like the, the classic ridiculous, oh, I'm calling from Microsoft and your computer has a virus and you need to download this and let me take control of your computer. Yeah, and then you've got to pay me $150 to unlock your computer to get your computer back. But he fell for it because that's us, right? That's maybe not you in that specific example, but that's us. And one of the things that this is telling us is this is good news because we get to give up our quest to try and be perfect. We let go of, of the search for trying to be all that. And we get to let go of this trying to make other people be impressed with us. Because the reality is they know you're not perfect already. And God certainly does. He knows your frame. He knows your weakness. He knows who you are. Trying to look perfect is doomed to failure, and it only sets us up for misery. And the amazing thing is God knows that. He knows your mess. He knows your brokenness. He knows that stuff you've never told anyone, and he loves you. And that's not us, though. Because, see, what do we do? We tend to look down on people that we think are dumber or weaker or poorer or more awkward than we are. I don't want to talk to that boring person. I, I don't want to hang around that guy. He's kind of awkward and he smells funny. And... But that's us, right? We get impressed with ourselves. We look down on people who've, you know, made a mess of their lives, who are kind of broken and, and weak, and, and we feel all noble, you know, for befriending them or helping them in some way. That is not God. God does not look down on people. He doesn't scorn anyone. He doesn't ridicule anyone. He doesn't condemn anyone for being what they are even though we are so much less than what we ought to be, God looks on us with compassion. Did you hear that? Look at verse 13. Like a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, to those who revere him, to those who awe and love him. Any of you have maybe ever babysat or you've got younger siblings or kids or you've worked in the nursery it's always kind of neat when a, a child brings up a picture for you that, that they've drawn, like a toddler, right? You pick it up, and, and, and of course, when they're really young, you have to, you know, you're trying not to, like, turn it all the way around and figure out what this thing is. What do you say? I mean, if you're, if you're compassionate and loving, like God is here, I mean, you don't go, what is that? That is the worst thing I've ever seen. That's a horrible circle. It's all flat on that. What is this supposed to be? An elephant? Is it me? Is it, 
Is it a chair? I, that's ridiculous. Get out of here. Go back and come back when you got something good to show me. No, you don't say that. Fortunately, we had some people who clued us in when our kids were real little. You don't even guess what it is. You ask them to tell you what it is they drew. So tell me about this. Oh, that's wonderful. And then you say, that is beautiful. Thank you so much for making that for me. I love it. I love what you did there. And you find a magnet and you put it up on the fridge. That's what a compassionate parent does. That's the way God is with us. Because, you know, kids are not very good at hiding. Not very good at hiding at hide and seek. Not very good at hiding their emotions. Not good at hiding their moods. They're, they're not very good when they're really young at, at lying or covering up anger or jealousy or you know, their sense of injustice. And parents know their children's sins because they're often right out in front of us, right? You, you can see it. And yet, a compassionate father doesn't condemn his child for being a child. He, he doesn't reprimand them. He, he, he loves his children anyway. In fact, in fact, the more weak and needy a child is, a compassionate father's heart goes out all the more to that child to give extra grace and extra care. That's what the Father in heaven is like, David is saying. God knows us to the depths, Tim Keller writes, and yet loves us to the heights. God knows. God knows you. That is good news. Because the second part that has to come right after that is that God forgives you as well. We bless the Lord because he knows us and he forgives us. That's the first reason that David gives in verse 3. Did you hear that? Who forgives all, all your iniquity. He is gracious with our frame and he is gracious with our failures. He forgives. Look at how David pictures that in verse 10. What does forgiveness look like? He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. He does not give us what we deserve. He does not write us off. He does not ever get to a point of saying, that's it, I'm done, you've exhausted my kindness. You've reached the limit. I, I gave you a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth chance, get out of here. That is, that is not God's message to us. He does not punish as we deserve. Instead, what he has done is he has punished his son as we deserve. That is amazing. And, and did you notice, he doesn't just ignore our sins or cover over them. Look in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far? Which way is east? Um, I grew up in the suburbs, not on a farm, so I don't always... East, yes, thank you. Andy grew up on a farm, so he knows which way east is. East is over here, the way the sun came up this morning, and west is over here. How far is the east from the west? How far east do you have to go to get to the west? There's, it doesn't work that way, right? It, it just, there's no, there's no limit to it. It doesn't exist. 
do I live like I really know that? Like, like I really, really believe that God is not just not paying attention to my sin, but, but it's really gone. Because honestly, there are times where it feels like, you know, well, there's my sin over there. And God's over here going, okay, I'm just, I'm just not going to look at that. I'm going to pretend it's not over there. But I'm watching you, Schultz. And the next time you mess up, you know what's over there. And I'm going to be sure I'm good at reminding myself of the ways I've blown it. And that's not what the Father does. He has removed, removed, it's gone. It, it does not count anymore. It's erased, it's wiped away. That means not only is there no punishment in our sins, they have no power over us anymore because they are not there. Sin has been defanged. It's been defeated. It, it does not control us anymore, and it does not condemn us anymore because look in verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. That, that's both an, an image of the grave and also kind of the brokenness and the futility and the emptiness of our lives outside of God. We put ourselves in a pit of sin and brokenness and ruin, and God brings us up out of it and puts our feet on solid ground. And we're not in the pit anymore because he's brought us up out of it. That is good news. And yet sometimes I still feel like, oh, I'm hopeless and, and I'm helpless and the gospel I need to preach to myself is, no, that is not, I'm, I'm not there anymore. And that's not true anymore. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And God does this because he wants us to know. And he knows us, he forgives us, and he really, really loves us. God really loves you. The whole psalm is full of expressions of this. He forgives all your iniquity in verse 3. He heals all your diseases. It's not some name it and claim it promise that if you have enough faith, you're never going to get sick because everyone that's ever taught that gets sick and dies eventually. And that's probably going to be the outcome for all of us. Any healing that we have received is a reflection of God's grace and kindness. It may have been mediated through doctors and medicines, and we're thankful for all that. But my heart is beating, my lungs are breathing. I am sustained because of the Father's kindness and goodness. He cares for you, not just for your soul, but for your life. He cares what happens to you. And crowns you with love and compassion. Wow, that sounds appropriate. I mean, I deserve to be crowned, right? No, remember, we're dust, like... You don't go find the biggest pile of, Amelia cut my hair last night, right? And there's this big pile of hair and dirt on the floor. We did not go get the nicest picture frame in the house and put it on the pile of dirt and hair to show off to people. You don't crown dust. You crown children, inheritors. God crowns us with love and compassion even though we don't deserve it. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed 
He strengthens us. And he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you ever hear things like that and just, are you ever just amazed how unlike us God is? Slow to anger. Man, I can be so irritable sometimes. Why did that happen? Why didn't that happen? I mean, think about how easily we can get set off, right? Bad traffic, bad weather, a bad meal, bad service, bad words from somebody, somebody else's bad mood, and then we want other people to know the bad mood that we're in so that they can share in the bad mood because misery loves company. God is slow to anger. He's patient. Like we wake up and, oh, it's raining again, another gray day in Indiana. Thanks, Lord. And how unlike us God is. I mean, God doesn't wake up and go, oh, another great. Wait a minute, I made the weather. No, he steadfast, the steadfast love of the Lord means he doesn't go up and down and back and forth like we do based on circumstances. He is faithful. He is the same character, the same patience, the same graciousness, the same kindness day in and day out. He abounds in steadfast love. He's not moody and unpredictable. Don't don't go talk to her today because, man, is she in a mood. Stay away from his office. Don't ask him about that project today because that's not the Lord. How, How great is God's love for you? David reaches literally to the heights to, to express it. Look at what he says here. The Lord's love is as high as the heavens are above the earth, 11. As far as the east is from the west. On and on, from everlasting to everlasting, he says. So think about the farthest reaches of interstellar space and beyond that is the length, the extent of God's love. And and how long does it continue? From eternity to eternity, David says. It it is absolutely inexhaustible. Man, that is not me. You are on my last nerve. That's not the Lord. And then this great crescendo in in verses 20 to 22. Bless you, O his angels, all his hosts, his ministers, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. As David is preaching the gospel to himself and, and being reoriented around who God is for him, it enlarges his vision. You know, it's, it's awesome that we have all these pictures in the Psalms of this whole range of emotion that David and others experience, grief and joy and sorrow and fear and concern and worry and uncertainty. And, and as helpful as those can be, because we experience all those things, do you, do you get a picture of what's happening here as David's vision is reoriented and lifted up and reminded of who God is for him, it enlarges his vision. 
Because, see, that happens to all of us, the, the opposite, when, when we get so focused on ourselves, right? Like, here's this thing right in front of me that's just obsessing me, and I can't see anything else but this problem or this issue or this desire or this thing I want to have happen or this thing that isn't happening. And David is saying, oh, my soul, put, put it in perspective and remind yourself of who God is and what he is like and what he is doing. And when he does that, David's vision is opened up to a whole creation, seen and unseen, invisible, heaven, earth, all of it, that, that is all designed to know and reflect and experience God's love and God's grace and God's goodness. That's what verses 20 to 22 are about. He, he's saying, oh, everything that has been made, everyone that exists, Praise him, know him, worship him, rejoice in him. You see, David anchors his hope not in even the great things that God has done in his own life, which are numerous. I mean, there are other places where, where David could say, bless the Lord, for he gave me victory over Goliath. Bless the Lord, because he took me from being a poor shepherd boy and made me king over Israel. Bless the Lord for giving me gifts and, a, and, a, and an ability to sing your praise and, and write psalms. But that's not what he says here. He says, bless the Lord, and he reminds himself of the foundational gospel story of the Old Testament, which is God raising up a deliverer to take his people from slavery into freedom, from death to life, through the blood of a sacrificial lamb. It comes from Exodus 34, where God is revealing himself to Moses, and, and he passes in front of Moses, letting him see a little bit of his glory, and, and he describes himself, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and compassion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. That, that, where did that come from? How does God's justice and God's mercy meet in that way? Because God is just and holy, and he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See, David is looking back to, to the gospel that he knew in his context, but Moses was the one who was actually looking forward to Jesus and told the people to look for one that would come after Moses. And now we're looking back to what Jesus has done. You remember that, that gospel that we heard earlier in our worship? He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but by his own mercy through Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs of eternal life. He doesn't just pardon our sin. He adopts us into his family. He makes us heirs with his son. He promises us eternity. He gives us access to him in prayer. He guarantees us of his love. And he makes us joint inheritors with his son of a new heavens and a new earth where everything will be renewed, including us. That's what is the anchor that keeps us steady, what orients us. You know, it's, it's not just, you know, people that, maybe look a little off or maybe have mental challenges sometimes that talk to themselves. We all do. 
Every single one of us, we all talk to ourselves all day long. Maybe we don't do it out loud. Maybe we're worse off for not doing it like David is doing here. What do you talk to yourself about? About how bad things are? About what God isn't doing? About how things could be so much better if only everyone would do it your way and listen to you and acknowledge you for your greatness and crown you? possible that things are bad. Maybe you are going through pain and struggle and sorrow. All the more reason to remind yourself of what David is pointing us to here. This is the anchor. This is what orients us. This is what gives us hope. It's important because we need a fixed point of reference, and it can't be something inside our lives because our lives are going to go all around and up and down and our feelings change. We need a solid reference point that is outside of our lives. We need a gospel that is greater than what's happening in our lives and what we hope will happen and what we think will make us happy. Preaching the gospel to yourself in this way, it it enlarges our vision, it stretches our hearts, it, it aligns us with reality. I've been a so so tennis player for a number of years. And uh, I enjoy playing. Uh, I had a guy that uh, I'd play with a couple ladies. We play mixed doubles on Monday pretty regularly in St. Louis. And, you know, everyone's game goes up and down, whatever hobby or sport or whatever it is you enjoy. I would get in a funk sometimes, and, you know, I'd, I'd start double faulting, which for those of you who don't play tennis, that's really bad. That means you're giving away points to the other people because you stink, and you can't get the ball over the net. And I would tell myself that, like, what is wrong with you, Schultz? Come on, just get the ball over the net. It's not that hard. You've done this before. Stupid. Come on, failure. Your teammate's counting on you. And then I would have to stop, and and the great thing about serving is that you get to decide when the next serve happens, and they just have to wait. So I would go sometimes and take, like, 30 seconds and just back away and Talk to myself. Jeff, what are you doing? This is a tennis game. It's not life and death. It's not your identity. You are a child of God. This game is not a measure of what you are worth. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, I would come back from that, and I can't say I necessarily served better. Sometimes I did. I could still double fault after that, but... It made a total difference in how I looked at myself, at how I looked at what I was doing, at how I looked at the people around me, even. Because I had to remind myself, look, I I have a message that those people need to hear. I have a hope that those people need to hear. And I'm not looking like it, and I'm not living like it. And every once in a while, one of the people I was playing with would actually ask me, "What, what did you do? What is different? Because your mood, like, did a 180. All of a sudden, like, you went from being crabby to you're happy and you seem confident. And, and I actually got an opportunity to talk to them about what I was preaching to myself. I'm a bad preacher, and you're a bad preacher too much of the time, but we have an awesome gospel. And one of the most important things that we can do is 
listen to the gospel that we're actually preaching to ourselves and ask God to help us make sure it really is the gospel. Because there is good news that he wants you to know and live out of and delight in. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. You are so good. Deliver us, we pray, Father, from the, the chains that we make for ourselves, the false gospels that we preach to ourselves. Free us from the love of our own comfort, the fear of having nothing, from a life of living just for worldly pleasures and pursuits. From pride in our accomplishments, belief in our own greatness and goodness, deliver us, O oh God. From the need to be right, the need to win, the need to be accepted, the fear of being lonely, deliver us, God. From the fear of failure and judgment, from fears of suffering and difficulty and death, deliver us, God. Because when we see your greatness and your goodness, you satisfy our souls. Help us remember, preach your gospel to ourselves and to one another. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul.